The interviews and discussions on this podcast are opinions only and not financial or investment advice. Listeners should obtain independent advice based on their own circumstances before making any financial decisions. Hello and welcome to this edition of Stockhead's Rock Yarn. I'm your host, Peter Strachan. Exploration and development companies operating in the rare earth elements area have seen massive market interest on the back of news flow over recent months. My watch list of companies with rare earth projects has jumped from eight to at least 42 over the past two years as prices for neodymium and praseodymium have taken off on the back of increased demand for permanent magnets used in mobile equipment as well as wind power generators and electric motors. To assist us today, we are again delighted to welcome back Tim Harrison, who is the Managing Director of Ionic Rare Earths. Welcome, Tim. Ionic's Makutu Rare Earth Projects has come a long way since we last spoke early in 2021. Your feasibility study is scheduled to be submitted to the Ugandan government at the end of October to support a mining licence application and also trigger Ionic's move to 60% ownership of the project's Ugandan operating company RRM. Can you outline the work program and news flow expected from here as the project goes through the various approval stages towards a decision to proceed? Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me back. Um, yeah, look, a lot going on with, with Makutu. We're, we're rapidly approaching the, the mining licence application. We've started the process in Uganda. At the moment, we're waiting for the formal approval of our ESIA. We submitted the environmental and social impact assessment uh, in Uganda back in December last year, and we've been working through through that process with stakeholders, um, you know, National Environment Management Authority in Uganda. We've recently had very large public hearings, um, so tremendous support. So we're, we're hoping that we're going to receive that formal approval very shortly. Beyond that, yeah, we've got a few other activities in, in Uganda which will then flow into the mining licence application. Obviously, we've got a feasibility study for a, a take-forward option which we'll present to the Ugandan government. And that'll be the basis for the for the mining license application, which we're yeah, as I mentioned earlier, looking to have submitted by the end of October. Great. So that's all good. Now, um, I remember the Makutu project is not resource constrained; it's massive. So, what scale of operation is proposed for mining and saleable product annually? And can you reveal any estimates at this point about capital and operating costs, or is it still too early? Yeah. Look, Pete. I mean, we've been doing a lot of work on the rare earth supply chain and obviously the downstream, you know, the building blocks, the, the value add that needs to be built um, in order to bring a project like Makutu uh, into production. I mean, we've, we've been looking at a, at a scenario where we start with a starter project, uh, two modules, treating around about 5 million tonnes per annum. That would produce around 2,000 tonnes of rare earth oxide equivalent product. In order to, to produce that product, you actually have to have a destination. We need to build a refinery or we need to have a partner with a refinery that can take a product like ours. You know, I suppose there's a lot of work that needs to go into that downstream supply chain because, you know, you go ahead and build a refinery and start producing rare earth oxides. The big question is where do those oxides go? Yeah. You know, the supply chain doesn't exist to take that and turn that into metal outside of China. So there's a tremendous amount of work that's really going into that downstream supply chain. And as a result of that, um, you know, various different strategic partners and, and how they'd like to see the project scaled up at Makutu, 
what we have to first demonstrate is the ability to produce a quality product from Makutu and to produce enough to enable our our supply chain partners to, to catch up on that downstream processing. So how's the metallurgical processing route been uh, evaluating? You've been doing some heap leach test works, I understand. That's correct. So we've um, we've been doing heap leach test work now um, for, you know, the last six, seven months. We initially started out doing heap leach test work at, you know, one metre and, and gradually scaling it up to three metre heap leach columns. Um, you know, getting data around the scale up, we've been able to demonstrate heat, demonstrate heap leaching up to five metres. Um, there is some work that we've got at the moment that suggests we could potentially go to six metres. But as far as the, the take forward option that we're adopting for the feasibility study, we'll go with a very conservative three metres um, with a view to, to potentially being able to demonstrate that at larger scale with a demonstration plant hopefully next year. Yeah. So would these uh, heaps be a mobile? Would you put them on, leach them on a pad and then take the leached material back to the to put in back in the pit or would they just remain uh, above ground? Yeah, so um, the, the, the metallurgical processing, I mean, what we, what we call this is a dynamic heap leach. So it's, a, it's an on-off heap leach pad. Um, whereby the material mineralization is mined. Um, it's washed with an ammonium sulfate solution um, with a small amount of sulfuric acid and uh, we're able to extract uh, the rare earth element content from the clay. And after a period of, you know, between 30 and 60 days, um, after the irrigation process has been completed, the, the heaps are rinsed and we reclaim the material and put it back in the ground so that uh, the mined areas can be rehabilitated and then re, uh, repurposed back as agroforestry or, or rehabilitated farmland. Yeah, excellent. So you, know, you, you spoke about the sort of global strategic um, situation with rare earths and China's role there, but there's a lot of interest in uh, getting downstream in Europe and in North America. And so to that extent, you've taken an interest in a UK-based company, Serentech, to look at downstream value adding from the project, what's going to happen there, and, you, and how will you use the grant from the UK government? Yeah, thanks, Peter. I mean, it was a um, the, the grant application we submitted in May, um, and we're fortunate enough to, um, you know, the UK government has has seen a, a great opportunity with the technical offering from Serentech. So, with that grant, uh, 1.7 million pounds. We're looking at building a demonstration plant where we'll be able to recycle approximately 30 tonnes of magnets per annum. Um, and from that, from that recycled material, we're able to uh, produce a individually separated rare earth oxides, which is a very unique offering um, in the current recycling space. Um, and with those recycled rare earth oxides separated and refined to high purity, we can actually take that that oxide material uh, and leverage that into other supply chain partnerships that we're, we're in discussions uh, with now on being able to demonstrate at small scale the ability to make metals, the ability to make alloys, the ability to make magnets. Um, so it really is a, a step change for us in being able to take forward and, and de-risk and scale up the technology but actually produce a meaningful amount of magnets 
you know, new supply supply chain that needs to be built. So does this sit alongside the uh, Makutu uh, project or would it be ultimately the aim to actually fit in as part of uh, you know, treating the uh, the oxides from Makutu? I, I think what we're looking at with Serentech and and, um, and the magnet recycling is complementary yeah. to, to what we're doing with Makutu. Makutu in its own right will be a producer of magnet and heavy rare, rare earths for in excess of 50 years. Um, the ability to be able to recycle magnets um, with the technology from Seren actually enables us to then capture that secondary sourced material. You know, it's a, a, it presently makes up about 25% of the, of the magnet rare earth, uh, you know, production globally and, um, you know, forecasts that it's going to be around 40% by 2040. So given that that magnet recycling market is completely dominated by China, you know, greater than 99% of the recycled rare earth, uh, magnet rare earths coming from China. This gives us an ability to develop modular magnet recycling um, in a number of jurisdictions across either Europe, the US or Asia, where we're able to tap into local supply chains, local partnerships, be able to process their spent material and return back to them refined, separated magnet rare earths that can facilitate their own domestic domestic manufacturing. Yeah. So, Tim, just following on from that and sort of expanding on what you were alluding to before about the global market, can you update the listener on the attraction of rare earths from a strategic and global economic perspective right now? I mean, you, I guess you're talking to a lot of potential partners in uh, Western Europe and North America. Yeah, look, um, I suppose probably the, the most, um, the point I'd like to make the most is that at the top of the, the podcast, Peter, you mentioned obviously, you know, the focus on neodymium and praseodymium. But unfortunately, there's two other elements that are probably more critical to the development of magnets, and that's dysprosium and terbium. Yep. They are heavy rare earth, uh, heavy magnet rare earths, and uh, the bulk of that supply presently comes from southern China and Myanmar. And uh, the reality is that the Western governments, um, Western manufacturing is becoming increasingly uh, concerned about where the molecules are going to come from. Where is the DYTB going to come from to facilitate these high intensity magnets that are going to go into EVs, that are going to go into offshore wind? Yeah. And when you look at the potential growth in, in the EV market, you know, potentially growing at sort of 20%. Um, over the next five years uh, and beyond that, you know, another 10% per annum out to 2032. There simply isn't the molecules in the current supply chain for all of these EVs and offshore wind turbines to be developed, which means that ultimately rare earth pricing is going to have to increase um, and that it, it there'll be a case of, of the haves and the have-nots. You've either got the molecules or you don't. Well, it's interesting uh, that the DY and TB are very high-valued products, and it brings me on to a further question about the mix or the basket of rare earths that you have. What's the main value driver amongst your uh, your sort of basket of elements at uh, Makutu? So when we look at the, the split of, of value, in our basket, I mean, it's a it's a very rich basket of, of magnet and heavy rare earths, but the magnet rare earths are really the ones that drive the bulk of the value. Um, NDPR, DYTB drives about 85% of the value of the basket at Makutu. So it is a product um, that is very well aligned 
to to the growth that's that's forecast on on EVs and offshore wind. And and the other attraction for for our basket, especially with potential strategic end users and, and OEMs, is that that we have the NDPR. DYTB yep. in the right ratios to be able to develop the high intensity magnets, which puts us in an extremely unique position to be a you know potentially a partner of choice across both the EV and, and offshore wind sectors. Yes, of course the applications go to all sorts of low emissions technologies, the magnets, the phosphors, superconductors, catalysts, uh, power generation applications. So it's a it's going to be a, an area of, of great interest going forward. So. Uh, the market for rare earth oxides is somewhat opaque, and I know prices have weakened since February this year after a, a fairly solid run up. What's your marketing contact saying about the prices over the coming decade? I mean, you've already spoken about the expansion of demand, but how does that sort of work out in terms of pricing, do you think? Look, uh, Peter, I mean, everybody I've spoken to has a, has a pretty consistent view. Rare earth prices are going up. The, the, the real query is by how much. Yeah. And, um, you know, with demand far exceeding supply and, uh, you know, in, in a lot of these applications, the, the rare earth simply can't be substituted out, uh, especially in the high-end applications. Ultimately, the user will end up paying more for these products because they're going to be increasingly more difficult to source yeah. um, and increasingly more difficult to source in a sustainable manner. Um, and that, I think, puts us in a, in a great position with, with Makutu being, you know, um, from an ESG perspective, it has a lot of very favourable attributes, um, you know, effectively powered from, from low-cost hydroelectric power. Um, and then the, the magnet recycling piece, um, the ability to be able to produce the full spectrum of, of individual separated magnet rare earths from secondary source materials puts us in a great position to be at the, you know, the leading edge of, of that, that next generation of, of rare earth suppliers. Yeah. So, Tim, you, we've spoken about the size of this. I know you've upgraded your estimated resource since we last spoke. Where is that number currently? And I notice, I mean, it's a massive, like, 15 square kilometres, I calculate, uh, a deposit. How does the, the mining begin? I mean, you have to relocate probably hundreds of people initially, but there, are, there must, must be thousands of people who live over that 15 uh, square kilometres. Yeah, so look, the, the, the total tenement areas that we've got at present is about 300 square kilometres. The initial mining lease area that we're applying for is 44 square kilometres, but that 44 square kilometres in itself has the potential to be a 30-year mine. Yeah. Certainly with regards to the potential resettlement and how we manage that, um, for the process plant area and a starter pit, we're looking at, uh, I think, 20 project-affected persons for the process plant area um, and about 50 for the initial mining pit. Um, and then we're able to sequence that over time. Yeah. So it's not there's no requirement to do it all in one hit. Um, there'll be a process and there'll be a process of, of rehabilitation and relo- um, relocating people back. We'll give them the option of, of being relocated back to the rehabilitated lands once it's... Um, it's passed all the regulatory um, approvals for such. Yeah, so it's a, a rolling program every five years. It's a rolling program that uh, it's going to be in operation for a very long space of time. And and what's the, the number uh, on the resource that you have at the moment? Yeah, so we're at 532 million tonnes at 640 parts per million total rare earth oxides. Um, beyond that, we've got an exploration target 
which has the potential to double again. Um, there's a new province out to the northwest where we haven't done any drilling yet, but um, some early reconnaissance drilling along the, 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 the top uh, northern uh, boundary of the, the Makutu western zone has actually come back with some very encouraging data, um, which, you know, we were not really expecting to, to, to have a zone up to the northwest. So we pegged that area and we're currently waiting for approvals to, to commence an exploration project up there. Beyond that, we've also identified continuity of the uh, rare earth bearing clays, the full 37 kilometre long um, radiometric anomaly. So the expectation is that Makutu will get a lot bigger. Um, the reality is that we've got more than enough there for us now to be looking at a starter project and, and start producing revenue from, from Makutu, start producing product and, and leveraging that product into the supply chains that we're looking to build now. Yeah, and, and in parts of that, you've got over 800 ppm in some of the high hotspots. But we were speaking about the, the supply chain earlier and what needs to happen for you to be able to take Makutu sort of to the market and, and to get some product offtake agreements. You need to sort of sort out the metallurgy process route for, uh, with uh, more information. What else? More so, um, Peter, it's about finding the right partner who is able at, at scale to turn oxides to metals, um, to turn metals to alloys and alloys uh, to powders and magnets. So um, there's a tremendous amount of work that's going on now um, in trying to find those partners. Um, you know, it's, it's discussions that pretty much span the globe because this is a skill set that's, that's spread across the world but nowhere really concentrated anywhere like it is in China. I mean, China has invested in the capability and, and the infrastructure. Yeah, and we've seen, uh, we, now we've seen Hastings uh, do a deal with NEO in Canada, so that's the sort of thing which would be useful, I guess. So, look, finally, Tim, what's the company's current bank balance and, and what funding options are under consideration? And will Ionic and its partners going forward, uh, will they be on a 60-40 payment uh, for further work once the feasibility is finalised? Yeah, so look, I'll tackle that one first. Um, so yeah, we moved to 60% on the completion of the feasibility study, but we do have a preemptive right on the remaining 40% of the project. So, you know, I mean, we're always looking at what's in the best interest of, of Ionic, uh, Ionic shareholders and and also the mechanism to de-risk Makutu. You know, we'll, we'll look, at, look at all options at the appropriate time with regards to that. With regards to the development of Makutu, once the feasibility study is completed, the mining license has been received. All shareholders in Renzori are responsible for their share of capital. You did a $30 million capital raising. How much of that is left in the bank at the moment? Yeah, look, uh, good question. I'd have to go back and have a quick look at what we had in the the end of end of June, but I, I think it's yeah, it's it's well north of twenty-five million. Yeah. Okay. Well, Tim, that's uh, going to be great. We'll watch uh, closely as the feasibility. Uh, comes to the market uh, in a month or so and uh, an ongoing drilling in these new areas that you've outlined. So uh, you've got a, a job ahead of you and uh, it's going to be interesting to follow that through through the rest of this year and into 2023. So th thanks for coming into Stockhead today. Great. Thank you, Peter. 